Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. All right, it's Nate and Shelby back for another episode in this woman series that we're doing. And this one's going to be a bit more, just a bit difficult, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're going to be addressing women and objectification and sexual violence that's throughout the Bible. And that is a heavy topic. I mean, I've felt heavy even just knowing that we're going to be recording this episode and We want to put that out there right at the beginning that, you know, if this is a topic that's just too personal for you, then like feel free to um, skip over. Like we're going to dig right into um, kind of my goal being in this episode to talk about the fact that the Bible is not necessarily always good for women and that there are actually a lot of things in it that have been harmful and continue to be harmful. And we're going to we're going to focus on those most of the time. And so we we know that this is deeply personal for so many people and feel free to take a pass if if you need to. And I think the reason this is such a uh such a tough episode to do too is because this is it's it's still going on in mm-hmm. the church. It's still going on in ministries that I mean I get emails from you all all the time and a lot of them are experiences that I've had. Maybe you're changing your faith, losing faith, not able to believe some things they used to believe anymore, setting out on a new course. Like I really resonate with that. And then sometimes there's stories of abuse of power within churches. Sometimes there's stories of sexual abuse within churches that I've, that I've received. And they're just really hard to read. And I, because I'm putting myself in your shoes and just imagining the, the trauma of what you've experienced. And this is a lot of the listeners of Almost Heretical. There's a good percentage of you that have personally experienced this. Yeah. And I just think of, I was just the other day is thinking in my head, almost making like a list of just the different people in um, Christianity, in leadership, in, in um, these different ministries that we all look up to, just the different names of whether it's, you know, the, the uh, just this last week, there was a story that came out from 2002 about uh, John MacArthur and the kind of helping to cover up or not report in the way that they should have um, and um, a sexual abuse and child abuse, a man who was involved in that and um, Mm -hmm. is now in prison for that. And he's telling the woman to, without all the details of the story, not believing the woman again, telling her that she needs to reconcile with the man. And then, and then when she doesn't going in front of the church and by name, telling the church what this woman has done. Um, and that way you basically have to shame her and cast her out. Yeah, and the Bible tells us to shame. And I mean, right. you look at what's going on in the Southern Baptist Convention over the last 15, mm-hmm. 10, 10, 15, 20 years. There's Bill Hybels, there's the Sovereign Grace Ministry scandal and and the, the not reporting by C.G. Mahaney, Josh Harris, and other leaders of the churches at that time. There's... Uh, the Ravi Zacharias stuff from mm-hmm. last year. There's, there's, there's like so many. Like I know I'm, <laughs> I know I'm leaving people out here. Mm-hmm. Um, 
it's so much. It's so heavy. Julianne Smith has been on the show before, and she does a lot of work trying to expose abuse of power, sexual abuse within the church and within uh, leadership in the church. So go back and listen to that episode and uh, and go follow her blog, um, which there's links to all that in that episode. All this to say there's so much of this still going on. This isn't, you know, what we're going to cover here is probably looking back at the past or whatever in the, in, in mm-hmm. the text of the Bible. But I think there is a, a direct connection between the the text that we have, the Bible that we've compiled, and what we still see going on in the church today. Yeah, I. Um, so if you listen to the last episode, we talked about the silencing of biblical women and the silences we see there, and that was really the focus of my um, my master's thesis that we talk a lot about in in the last episode. And so I remember as I was studying for that thesis um, and, you know, was immersed in this topic and, I mean, it was very technical reading, you know, Dead Sea Scrolls and Josephus and all this kind of ancient stuff. And as, as I'm, you know, working away in my little basement suite, I see these headlines um, about the whole Ravi Zacharias scandal that was coming out right at that same time. And um, I just remember seeing this connection so clearly that, uh, I don't know that a lot of other people were looking at, which is the fact that as a researcher on the silencing of biblical women, um, I see that kind of news about, you know, a, a a religious leader, a Christian leader, sexually abusing and then covering it up. I see that through an ancient biblical lens, and I see that th- those patterns being laid out in the Bible, and so that's what we're going to look at today. Is 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 the are those people who are abusing power and abusing women particularly, is that actually um, soundly condemned in the Bible? Um, I would say that it's actually not, and that that is an issue that we have to face head on. So let's dive in. Uh, I want to start, as I often do, in the beginning, Genesis 1. Um, Starting there because this is, again, the foundational understanding of women, not just in the Bible, but for you know, Jewish culture, which then lays the foundation for Christian culture in many ways. So going back to how, you know, what is the very first um, impression of women that were given? And in Genesis 1, you know, the creation, that's actually a fairly egalitarian creation in Genesis 1. You know, they create male and female, and there they are. There's not a lot else said. Genesis 2 has a little bit more elaboration. It's like the second version of the creation narrative. They're two different narratives about creation. Um, if you've been told that they're one, go back and read it. It's pretty interesting. And so Genesis 2, that would be the one with the rib and woman was formed second, that kind of a thing. Right. A lot more detail about first the man, then the woman, and you know the man is lonely. And, and so then God says, you know, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helpmate for him or a helper for him. Um, this line that has been uh, <laughs> used for all sorts of purposes and definitely has this connotation in our English speaking minds of like his assistant, his, you know, he's the one to, he to needs make a secretary. his, right, his secretary and make his sandwiches and, you know, get, set him up for success to be able to keep being the, the leader that God wants him to be. Right. And that is, that is not a stretch for any of us who've grown up in a conservative um, tradition. But it's interesting, and I'll just throw this tidbit in here, that those words, um, helper, make a helpmate for him, um, that in Hebrew is, uses the word ezer, which is used, I think, around 23 times in the Hebrew Bible, that word ezer. Um, twice, I think, it's used to refer to a woman, or, or maybe just this once. But almost every other instance that it's used throughout the Hebrew Bible, it's referring to God. 
Like uh, in Psalm, I think it's Psalm 121, when it says, uh, I lift my eyes unto the hills, where does my help come from? Mm-hmm. Like that, it's talking about God. And, and that's the same word, help, ezer. So, so just, I'm just throwing that tidbit out there to say that, you know, when it says, I will make a helper for him, it's not saying I'll make him, you know, some, an assistant. It's saying, I will give him the aid that he needs in the sense, in the same way that God himself would aid. So, so there's not yeah. really a, not really a uh, hierarchy being put in place by that word. Um, that said, <laughs> I don't think that Genesis 2 as a whole is like creating some kind of a matriarchy. Um, because it is overall very male dominant. I mean, Adam's made first, the woman's literally made out of his side. And so, so we do start with the woman being kind of an afterthought. So then moving on to Genesis 3, where we have the fall. And of course, I mean, we all heard this story a hundred times. The, the woman you know, talks with the snake and the, I mean, those are all, it's serpent in, it's called serpent in Hebrew. It doesn't necessarily say snake. But she succumbs to the, the serpent's temptation and eats the fruit, and then she goes and tempts the man. And historically, the blame for that has fallen on the woman, like the blame for both people. Like we blame the woman for succumbing, and then we blame her for also tempting the man. What have you heard in, like, preached about this? How have you heard this taught? I mean, I think there's... Obviously, it's taught in the sense of you can't trust yourself. You can't trust um, your own intuition or your, you know, you, you, the the devil's speaking lies into your mind all the time. And so you have to just blindly follow the word of God, which, you know, that's that gets stretched in a lot of ways. Have you ever heard this taught as like, this is why women can't be in leadership? This is why possibly women can't be pastors. Are well, elders. I've definitely. I feel like I'm. I don't know if I heard as clearly that connection, but I was definitely. I heard um, women shouldn't be leaders because they're more emotional, and then that would maybe you're right get tied to this. You know, see how she just sell, fell so easily to the to the serpent's temptation. So I've mm-hmm. heard that. I've heard it. I've heard this. So that's why I was just wondering, as a woman, if you've heard that too. Um, and I don't think that's a. I don't think that's a stretch. Like. <laughs> Like, I, I think a lot of people wouldn't be shocked by that. People that have maybe grew up in the church or have had experiences in the church that even if you haven't heard that in your church, I don't think, I, th- I don't think it's hard to imagine that being said in a church, even if you haven't heard it. Yeah. No. And I mean, I've heard it used as a, a statement for why men should not listen to their wives. Wow. Really? Yeah. I mean, I've heard it said that uh, the story, you know, demonstrates why men should be the the one making final decisions and that they shouldn't necessarily follow the uh, guidance of their wife, that kind of thing. Wow. But interestingly, um, there is another story that was just as prominent in Jewish culture. I mean, at some portions, maybe even more so just as prominent, um, an explanation of the origin of sin as the fall. Like we just, we have the story of the fall and that's our one, origin of sin story Mm, yeah and they the the ancient jews had the story of the watchers was also one of their explanations for how sin came into the world we see that briefly mentioned in genesis 6 1 to 4 and it just basically is this really kind of cryptic little thing about angels coming and mating with human women and bearing giants that's basically all it says but around this especially in the second temple period which is that 
you know, period of so-called silence between the Old and New Testament. There was, there's tons of literature about this story of what were these angels who came and did they, were they tempted by the women to come or were the women essentially raped by these angels? Like there's a lot of debate over that. Um, but I think that it's interesting because they, they say that, you know, the, those angels are the ones that brought sin down on, on humans. And then, you know, the children that they bore taught humans how to, you know, make war and make weapons and taught them to be jealous and greedy. And so it's another explanation for how sin came to be. But in this case, it's not the woman's fault. It's these other beings who came and essentially forced it on her. And I think that's a very different understanding. And if like, if that was the main story that we had, for these last 2000 years as the origin of sin, we wouldn't necessarily see women as, you know, the problem as much as the victims in that situation. Mm. And that humanity as a whole, it wasn't like sin wouldn't have been humanity's fault. It was actually these angels fault, which is very interesting. So I think some listeners will remember back. That was the first series we ever did on this show, on this show was about the watchers or the divine realm. Um, the giants in the land, Nephilim, this this type of stuff. Very different show if you go back, by the way, and listen to the beginning (laughs) of Almost Heretical. Um, In some ways, it doesn't even feel like the same show. It's just very different. We were in a different, very different place coming out of some kind of weird stuff in the church and that type of thing. So um, yeah, just it's very different. Sometimes I'm like, I wish we could go back and re-record some bits or this or that or say this differently. And um, that's just not how creating public work (laughs) yeah it's just not how it works so what you can do is keep going and that's what i've done on the show and um still proud of like the work we did but it also just sounds really different but if you go back and listen to that series the first series we did it's like episodes two through seven or two through eight something like that we we talk about a lot of this but i'm just curious for people that haven't or for anyone listening you know you mentioned these uh the watchers or i just said the nephilim or giants or that type of thing can you can you show us? Because some people are like, "What? That's not in the Bible. What are you talking about?" Like, what? like it's just because we've we've so erased it from our. Uh, you know, you don't hear sermons really, and even if it, there is a sermon covering those those passages, it's like kind of sloughed away. Like, yeah, yeah, okay, but like, let's get to what we can actually teach out of this passage here. Let's you know, let's get to the 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 meat of the passage and let's lay in the plane there. But it's it's kind of shocking for people when they realize like, no, this is there. We just don't really we called it in these early episodes, we called it the the weird stuff in the Bible that we usually don't <laughs> yeah. really think about. It's like let's start with the weird stuff because maybe passing over that has led us to some strange places, I guess. So so yeah, so where is this? Um yeah. just like real briefly, like minute or so like where is this like what's a verse people would know and it actually has this stuff in it well yeah the main um place you'll find it is genesis 6 verses 1 to 4 i'll just read it real quick since it's short says when so this is um right before noah essentially um says when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them the sons of god so that's this interesting phrase sons of god and there's a lot of literature about that in the ancient world Um, Because usually when we hear that son of God, you know, we think Jesus, but uh, in this case, it meant like it's, it's B'nai Elohim. It's like the, the, it refers more to what we would think of as angels, although angels is kind of a a more modern term, but the sons of the gods kind of a thing. Yeah. That kind of a thing. Um, But it says the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives, any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. 
The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. I think I just like read that as a kid or heard it read as a kid or something. And but I'm just like, okay, yeah, I don't really, I don't quite understand. Maybe it just means like other people and they were like strong and, you know, they were like the men of valor or something like <laughs> right. that. You know, I don't know. But let's get back to the next thing, you know, like, but it's, it is strange. Right. And the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls really increased our awareness of how big of a deal this story was in particularly that second temple period. Um, we talked a lot in the last episode about the text, the Genesis Apocryphon, and the opening chapter or so of that is very fragmentary and we don't know exactly, but we can see traces of um, ta- them talking about the Watchers, the Nephilim. So we know that that's kind of the origin story that they're going with. And then there's an entire book called the Book of Watchers. There's the Book of Enoch, which is telling the story of going and um, interacting with these giants and Watchers. There's a book called the Book of Giants, which is uh, the giants are the Nephilim who are the children of the watch- Watchers and the women. So they're kind of this mixed hybrid, half human, half divine. And they're called giants. And the, the book of giants is, is almost like this comedy of, of them realizing that God's about to send this flood to destroy all of them. And they're like, how do we save ourselves? So this is a, it's a, it's a huge topic in the ancient world and was very well known. And many would say that uh, Goliath was part of that mm-hmm. race and that's why Goliath needed to be removed um and there's yeah we talk about that in the in the in that series that's following a lot of the work of like Michael Heiser and stuff like that but um interesting yeah this is fascinating yeah okay so you mentioned that in comparison to Genesis 2 where Eve where woman is the one who essentially brings sin and evil into the world. This is kind of an alternate story almost where it's these uh, this these divine beings, uh, these uh, sons of the gods, these Nephilim giant mm-hmm. creatures that are the ones that bring evil into the world and that's why they need to be kind of eradicated from the land. And uh, so this could lead, lead us to not using Genesis 2, Genesis 3, like not using that against women. Kind of, yes. I mean, I don't want to paint too bright of a picture here because while it is definitely different, like it's not it's not as blatantly the woman's fault, in both stories, and this is kind of where I was going to go with this, in both stories, Genesis 3 and um, Genesis 6 of the Watchers coming and mating with the women, in both cases, paint the women as weak and um, and that their sexuality is kind of a problem, more so in the Watchers story. Hmm. Um Neither of those portray the women well. Um, in one, they're maybe more at fault, but in both, they were the weak link, essentially. And so it's not hard to draw the connection between people seeing women as less and as weak and then seeing oppression and violence toward women grow. Um, so that's kind of the direction that we're going from today. So from there, we're going to start walking through some stories in the Bible and looking at how they portray not just women or the men in the story, but also specifically God as well. So the formula we're kind of going to use for a couple stories here is um, the situation of the woman, the action of the man, and then God's response. So we're going to look for those three things in a couple stories. Um, Some of them are very familiar, so we won't have to read them. Um, But I want to look through these to specifically deal with the the argument or the mentality that if we just follow the Bible or understand the Bible, 
um, appropriately, and if we really, you know, were had a biblical worldview that, you know, that's the solution to violence toward women and sexual oppression of women. Um, because I, I don't believe that, and I believe that the Bible in a lot of ways has actually done the opposite. And we're going to look at these stories to understand this a bit with the formula. So, Okay, I'm excited to get into this. Okay, so where are we going first? So we're going to start in Genesis 19 um, with the story of Lot and his daughters. And actually, you know, maybe we should read it. If you want to pull it up, it's Genesis 19, 4 to 8. And if you've got that, you could read it for us. Okay, cool. Yeah, cause, I mean, I've heard this preached. I, I can remember hearing this preached. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a familiar story, but I think when um, when we really are listening to it through this angle, it's, uh, it's horrifying, so. Okay, Genesis 19. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they had to go to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they replied. This fellow came here as a foreigner, and now he wants to play the judge? We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness so that they could not find the door. So, I mean, that's horrifying. It makes my stomach turn upside down just listening. Yeah, me too. And, I mean, there's a lot of different things happening here. As many of us know in um, ancient Middle Eastern culture, and still to this day, hospitality and to care for the guest in your home is one of the highest possible values. So it would not have been as strange to an ancient mind that Lot would have put these men over his daughters, like that, that they were more, it was more important for his reputation that these men be taken care of than his daughters. So let's use this, the, the formula we were talking about of like the woman, uh, the man's action, and then God's response. First of all, I mean, the women, the daughters are there. They really have no role in the story other than being told that they're there. And thankfully nothing actually happens to them in the story, but right. they were, I mean, more than volunteered. Right. You could do whatever you like to them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, the lots action in this story is, I mean, appalling, and that's what we've read. But I think most terrifying to me is God's response. In this case, more of a lack of response, but and there's obviously, there's no direct, you know, and then God spoke from heaven and said, you know, Lot, don't do this. Or Lot, you know, do this. Like, God doesn't necessarily speak in here. Could have used a couple words from God, Yeah, probably. he could have, maybe. Like, uh, Lot, what you have done is uh, a sin against me and a sin against your daughters. Go from the land, you shall never return. Right. And I mean, this is all in the context of, you know, Abraham has just been begging God to save the city because of the righteous person who is in there, which he, he says is Lot, and God finally 
um, essentially agrees and um, then ends up destroying the city, but saves Lot. I mean, after this story, like the next thing that happens is that the city is destroyed, but Lot is saved because he's this righteous remnant of Abraham's family. Yeah, I don't, I think I ever heard this preached as like a Lot is like, look what Lot did, you know, like this was one of the blemishes on Lot. No, this was a positive story about Lot. Yeah. And if anything, it was like, look how horrible the city was. Like, of course it had to yes. be destroyed, but nobody pointed out, well, Lot was clearly, well, and, that, and that's the problem is that in, in the view of the Bible, Lot was not as bad as the city mm-hmm. because he was willing to protect these men. And the fact that he was willing to literally allow his daughters to be gang raped did not disqualify him for being righteous. So that's where we're starting that's from. That's a problem. That's a problem. I mean, it's a problem in the text, but I guess with all of these things that we're going to look at, I almost want to add one thing to your like list, you know, and we'll, mm-hmm. we'll do it at the end instead of, instead of doing it for each story. You know, you're saying from the woman's point of view, from, or the, the, let's look at the women in the story. Let's look at the, the male character in the story and let's look at God's, God's response. I almost want to add in, mm. let's talk about how this how maybe this has, has implications taught. for how it's been taught or like how it has implications for mm. Like how the church operates, how Christians operate, how they view the world, like that type of stuff. And maybe we'll have a chat at the end, um, kind of summarizing a lot of those into one. Um, but because, yeah, I think it's it's really important to 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 make that connection because these aren't just ancient texts that we can look at. Like, yeah, you know, I think I think uh, God um, doesn't look great in this one, right? Like, it's not just that. It's um, these are texts that kind of echo on into the future, mm-hmm. into now, and how Christians set up their churches, set up, try to view the world and things like that. Yes, um, you're you're 100% right. Um, and this is, we're still in Genesis. Um, we're not going to look through every book, but I do want to move to the next story, which is in 2 Samuel 13. Um, to summarize the, the context, um, King David is ruling, uh, known as the man after God's own heart. And he, he has multiple sons. Two of them are Absalom and Amnon. And he also has a daughter named Tamar. Absalom and Tamar are full siblings and Amnon is their half-brother. And Amnon falls in love with Tamar and wants to sleep with her. And he manipulates the situation so that uh, Tamar is, ends up left alone in the room with him. And then he he tries to start to rape her and she's begging him and she actually has some lines, which is remarkable for women, as we talked about in the last last episode. But she's speaking to him saying, please don't do this. Please just go and talk to our father, David, and he'll allow me to marry you, but don't bring this disgrace on me. And he doesn't listen to her and he rapes her. And then she goes out and is covering herself in ashes and is weeping and her brother, Absalom, um, so I'm going to start pick up. I'm going to pick up right there and just read Second um, Samuel 13 verse 20. Um, her brother Absalom said to her, "Has that Amnon, your brother, been with you? Be quiet for now, my sister. He's your brother. Don't take this thing to heart." And and Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. Sounds familiar. I'm pretty sure that's what John MacArthur <laughs> did in that one story that you uh, you brought up for, from maybe three four years ago with a. Um, a student from the master's college or master's mm-hmm. seminary. I'm not sure which one it was, but... Yeah, a, a student, a female student who was um, drugged and raped by a seminary student. And when she um, brought complaint to the school, 
they um, expelled her and told her, eventually brought her in and told her to reconcile with the man to apologize to him and, or maybe even marry him. And, and yeah, that was brought to John MacArthur's attention and yeah, he did not do anything to rectify the situation. And this is, like I brought up at the beginning, this is countless stories of, there's like degrees of complicity within Christian leadership for sexual abuse. I mean, all times types of abuse, but for sexual abuse specifically, there's like the Ravi Zacharias where you were completely living a double life and it was you doing the this thing, you know? And then there's like other degrees of like I mentioned where you have like the C.J. Mahaney's and the Josh Harris's and the Al Mohler's even in that story of Sovereign Grace where sure, they weren't like, <laughs> they weren't the ones like directly sexually abusing someone. But when stories are brought up and John MacArthur, like you just said, when stories are brought up and brought to them, um, there's some form of not trusting the the woman. There's some form of uh, pushing the, uh, keeping the investigation in house, right? Like we'll handle it. Like we're not going to uh, let the authorities know because we need to collect all the facts here. We want, and w- but what you hear, you don't hear like because we want to cover this up. Well, no, what you hear is for the sake of the gospel, mm-hmm. for, the, for the reputation of the church, reputation of the church. You know, um, we want we want God to look good. We want Jesus to look beautiful in this story, and we forgiveness and reconciliation and. But what ends up happening every time, pretty much, is the woman is not listened to. Abuse is able to keep happening, um, even if it's not in that story. It's in other stories. If you look at Sovereign Grace, many other churches, many other people, um, and I'm sure with things like Master's College, if that's the culture that they have there, you look at like Liberty University and some of the things that come out of there, and yeah. Yeah, and I, I mean... When you talk about levels of complicity, I mean, even this story of of Tamar and Absalom and Amnon, um, and the main reason that I wanted to bring that up is because their father is David. And further, I mean, the next couple of verses in this chapter, Second Samuel thirteen, um, this is brought to David's attention, and he does nothing about it. And hmm. I mean, he's it says that he is angry, but he doesn't um, punish his son and is there a big long speech about how this is wrong and no no and i mean the main reason that he's angry is like the disgrace that it brings on him it's not really about this is my daughter how you could you do this to her and i mean and this is coming from i mean the same david who raped bathsheba i mean this is it's a a general i mean he's going to end up with son solomon who has you know 700 wives this there's there's a clear problem here and and the the part that gets me the most is that this i mean david is maybe the best example of a godly man in the old testament and i mean you could debate you know is it abraham is it moses i mean all of these guys have some issues but but i mean david is called the man after god's own heart and god i mean the like the kingdom the the line of david is throughout the rest of scripture, all the way through to Jesus. David is the figure that God has made this promise to that he will not break. And, you know, maybe some would say like, you know, isn't that great of God that he like kept this promise to David, even though David was a fallen, broken person, just like us. But, but the fact that God, I mean, God doesn't intervene in the story either. Like we, what we're just seeing is that women are just collateral damage in so many of these stories. 
another story that happens in Judges 21 is um, there's not enough wives to go around for the tribe of Benjamin because the other tribes aren't sharing their women with them. What a culture to be living in. And so they, they wait for all these young women in a different city to, to go out and dance in the field, which is their, you know, festival ritual of the year. And once all the women are dancing out there, they rush in and they seize, they each seize a woman to be their wife and they run off with them. And, and then it ends, the passage ends with, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And, and there was no king in the land of Israel. And there's other stories in Judges, like the story of Jephthah's daughter in, I believe, is Judges uh, 11, that where Jephthah sacrifice, literally sacrifices his own daughter to God, Yahweh. Um, we can look that up on our time. But I've had people, when I bring those stories up, I've had people message me and call me out basically saying, well, these stories are just demonstrating how evil Israel was becoming and that they needed a king and they needed God's leadership. And in one sense, I agree. I, I do agree that that was literally the purpose that they that the stories were being written for, was to demonstrate just how wicked mm-hmm. that the people were becoming. But, and my point here, is that in addition to that, God's inaction and silence regarding what was happening still sends a message that girls like me grew up with, which was that these things were happening and and God didn't stop them until much later, potentially. I mean, except for they're still happening today. Hey, Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Oh, Troy, you know that I was because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian. I sense the Lord at work here. Mm, He works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. So we looked at a couple stories of actual men and women who are telling these horrific stories that a lot of the time we don't see. We don't see God saying anything, or we actually see God denoting these men as righteous people. But that's not the only way that I see the Bible as contributing to the problem of sexual violence. If you look through the prophets, that's the next kind of category I want to go with. There Mm -hmm. is so much content throughout the prophets like Hosea and Ezekiel and even the book of Revelation, which is a type of prophecy later on in the New Testament. But there's so much imagery around Israel or the church as a promiscuous woman or an unfaithful wife who then, I mean, how how is that woman treated? That's the part that I want to look at. So in Hosea chapter 2, um, Israel, the, the image is that Israel is this woman who has been unfaithful. And then in as a punishment for her sin, God will, quote, strip her naked and leave her. I mean, that's that's what it says God will do. I will go and I will strip her naked and hmm. leave her there. 
And then later it says he will, quote, speak tenderly and restore her. So usually we focus on the end, that message of like, and then God, you know, he he is merciful to this woman who was unfaithful and he still restores her and brings her back. But we ignore the fact that essentially God, or at least the prophet who's writing here, I'm not going to assume that it was God saying this, but what we've attributed to God is that she can be sexually assaulted and left and treated if she deserves it. Like if she Mm. did something wrong, then it is just of God to um, be sexually violent toward her. And that, I mean, that's, this isn't one man toward one woman set, set setting. This is imagery talking about God's actual action, that God is justified to do yeah. that using this image of a woman to publicly shame her and strip her naked. And that's... Um, Horrific? Yeah, I guess so. Um, in, in my research on this topic, I came across um, the Jewish Women's Archive, and they had an article that was talking about this phenomenon of Israel being associated with the image of a woman and then um, what that looks like. So the quote says, in these texts, the destruction of the Northern Kingdom and later the Southern Kingdom, along with the destruction of Jerusalem, are all viewed through the lens of rape, infiltration of the enemy into the city, the decimation of property and the loss of life are all understood through the filter of the female body. It's possible that the actual experiences of the male population as captives of war led to a collective sense of emasculation. The prophets, especially Ezekiel, were trying to make sense of traumatic events. In order to make sense of their victimhood, they had to imagine themselves collectively as God's wife receiving the appropriate punishments for bad behavior that they presumably would inflict on their own wives. In the search for a theological rationale for their misfortunes, they may have tried to shift their experience of powerlessness and loss of control, which would be associated with women's social positions, to a hyper-identification with God, who has every right to inflict brutal punishment upon his wife. End quote. So, tying back to the beginning, um, we're finding that there's just this foundational understanding of women as symbols of, of sin, back from Genesis, and of of culpability, of blame, and of deserving of what they get. Um, and the, the prophets contribute to that picture as well. Yeah, I mean, as we've talked about in previous episodes, it's, this, it's still this idea of women are lesser, women are property, uh, men are the main ones in the story here, and what happens to women is, is not important to the level where you can have God involved in these stories and something happening to a woman, and that's not even brought up as like an issue. It's not even brought up as one of the, you know, one of the little marks against this story here, or against this man in this story. It was about, you know, some other, something else that that person did, you know, but they're still a man after God's own heart. They're still righteous. Mm-hmm. Um, but this wasn't even brought up in, you know, we look at Lot or we look at David or whatever, and these weren't even brought up as like little knocks against them or something like that. Yeah, thankfully in the story of David and Bathsheba, you know, at least later on, um, Nathan, the prophet, comes and kind of confronts David about that. But it's really more about you took Uriah's wife. It's not really about, you know, what you did to Bathsheba. But then with the story of Tamar that we addressed earlier, there's no there's no follow-up to that. It's not like for generations, it's, you know, how could David have let this happen? If anything, it's like, oh, poor David had such a terrible son. Yeah, and I was thinking about, like, should we wait for the end for this? You know, but like... I think I think we do need to address when we look at the Old Testament, right? Because it's a big category of of literature here. When we look at the Old Testament, I think what's often said is like, okay, 
this was a different culture. You're expecting, you're looking back and you're expecting them to believe things or to act a certain way in light of our modern conceptions of men and women or modern conceptions of human rights and, um, and all these types of things, right? Like you're expecting that of them. How, like you can't put that onto an ancient people. And I agree with that to, to an extent, right? But also I feel like in the same breath, what someone arguing that would say is that, but God, you know, is omniscient. God knows everything. God's perfect. God's perfect. This text has everything we need for life and godliness. So to me, it doesn't fully work. I mean, I think the other thing that would that would probably be said is that, um, well, a couple things. You know, when we look at Lot or we look at David, I think what would what would be said is like, well, okay, yes, everyone is everyone has sin, right? right? We're like, all everyone. Nobody's perfect, exactly. You got to look at the totality of their life. Everyone who writes a book on David would have to address how is he got the man after God's own heart and then has sin, which they would say is the sin of adultery or whatever. You know, how do you how do you reconcile that? Um, so I think that the the message is usually look at the totality of their life doesn't mean that everything they did was good or was God approved, right? No, yeah, and they'd say that this just like that it emphasizes God's mercy and that like God is, you know, he sees their heart and that their heart is um to to love and follow God despite all of their shortcomings. But what does that say to us about someone like Ravi Zacharias? Like so is it about his heart or is it about what he did? And how are those not the same thing? Right. And when you have these stories, like the way that these should have been written then is that, you know, here's David, he's a man after God's own heart because we look at the totality of their life, right? And there's, there's sin and these, these separate things, but we have to be able to look at this story and we should, we should have God's voice in these stories. And it should be standing up for the victim, standing up for the woman. Um, if this is God, if this is, these are the words of God and God is omniscient, God knows everything. And God's not bound to time, right? Like, if we believe that the views that we have on on women today, and we could take many different topics too, slavery, whatever it is, are better than the views of that ancient people, well, God knew those, right? God knew what was better. God knew that they, they didn't have the correct view, and that should be in there. Right, I know it's expecting a lot of the text, but this what is being what we're told about what the Bible is, is that these are and so okay, so then they would say another another argument was like, well, this gets cleaned up in the New Testament, right? Like this isn't the mm-hmm. ideal. This isn't this wasn't God's ideal, and it's still. I mean, you still have to address that. There's a silence there from God mm-hmm. in these stories. It's not called out at all. And then right? beyond silence, I mean, there's you know the the prophets are aligning God with those actions in many ways. Exactly. And so I think yeah, what you're kind of saying is if we're going to say that these are the words of God, that God intended the these texts to be holy, authoritative scripture, then there's a problem. And I think the reason why you know I still feel like this there's a Bible to be recovered here or to be used here is because as we've talked about throughout, because I don't believe that God intended all of this to be attributed as his word and his, like, authority, that this is what he wanted to say. Big claims, big claims. Yeah, and that's very similar to, like, uh, Greg Boyd and, like, what's it called? Divine Allowance, I think, that the people writing the Old Testament essentially had 
their views of who God was and what God wanted. And they wrote that in there as the words of God. And God was kind of like allowing them to believe incorrect things about God's self. Um, but yeah, I can go there a little bit. I can go there a little bit, but it's still, uh, yeah. Anyway, I was going to bring up one more claim. I think one more, oh, one God. more um, pushback that is brought when you start, when you start saying the things that you just said about the Old Testament. Um, you, you mentioned it when you said the line of David, people will say, it's it's like to show that God uses imperfect people, and that's mm-hmm. the whole point of Jesus is that He's going to use us in our imperfection, um, right? And that's the point of these Old Testament stories. And that still doesn't get back to what we've said of, but God still did not intervene, did not speak up, did not help the women in this these stories. Like we're we're still seeing women abused, and not in a like, oh man, just how sad the situation was. But in a sense of, I mean, these are still righteous people. And even God himself could, could, would do this as, as we saw in Hosea. So it's not just like a God's going, oh man, that happened again. Well, I'll use that imperfect person anyway. I mean, that's, that's, that doesn't seem excusable. Obviously, yes, everyone is imperfect, but this, and this is what it comes down to. The fact that the Sexual abuse and violence toward women is not treated like something that should eliminate you from being considered righteous and true, like, follower and lover of God. The fact that that, those things can coexist, that you can be, I mean, not just a a Jew or a Christian, but like a leader, the king of Israel and the the line of David, man after, like, the top of the top, and be a um, complicit with and perpetrating abuse toward women. I mean, that's what we're saying is that these things are allowed in the Bible to coexist. And so then why are we surprised that they're still happening, that people are mega church pastors and seminary leaders and also, you know, watching child pornography and abusing women and having like that, that happens in the Bible with no punishment, no pushback from God. So well, I see the same patterns happening today. Yeah. You mentioned the the claim that, the, you know, this all gets cleaned up in the New Testament. So let's quickly visit the New Testament. We're going to spend more time on that on a different episode, specifically focusing on Jesus. So I'm not going to touch a lot on the Jesus part right now, but I do want to just, because most of the New Testament is Paul and outside the Gospels, almost 100% of the New Testament is literature attributed to Paul. So Ephesians 5.22, one of the most common quoted verses on this topic is, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Right. Um, So we definitely are still, I mean, again, we shouldn't be surprised. This is still a patriarchal culture that we're seeing here, but just pointing out that that has not changed by the New Testament is that uh, this alignment of husbands and men with God and women as, as the alignment with humanity. And that's the same alignment we were seeing in the prophets where um, God is over his wife, which is Israel, you know, same kind of deal. But I think a more just um, staggering verse that I came across uh, a couple years ago that is one of those that I was like, wait, has this always been here? Like I've read through the Bible multiple times and how did this not jump out to me? Or how did, you know, I've never heard this preached on is First uh, Corinthians 11 verses seven through 10. Um, it's talking about head coverings, and then it just has this little bit in here. It says, a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. 
For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. A weird little twist at the end there, too. Like, wait, angels? How did this happen? Which maybe makes a little more sense now with what we've talked about. I mean, there's a lot of debate over what's that little phrase mean, but um, considering that this is written right at the end of the Second Temple period, it is very likely to do with the Watchers and um, the idea that women should have authority over them because, you know, otherwise they might be a temptation to these angelic beings that apparently back in, you know, Genesis came and, and raped them and created this whole race of giants. So let's not let that happen again. But I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, just appalled by verse nine, which says, neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. So, I mean, the reason I bring this up is to, to say the attitude of the New Testament, specifically Paul, is not pushing back on the purpose of women. I mean, it says women was created for man. Yeah. It doesn't get much more blatant than that. Right. And I mean, I don't, I don't, I think a point like that is where a lot of Christians today have to stop and go, do I believe that or not? I mean, that goes against, I think even a lot of us who would maybe hold traditional gender roles or um, we still wouldn't say that women were created for men, but I don't know. I mean, if you're going to, if you hold to the inerrancy and infallibility of every word of scripture, then maybe you do believe that. And, and I guess our point being that if we are still allowing every word of the Bible, including that phrase, that woman was created for man, if we allow that to be authoritative, then it is no surprise that we are still seeing the type of sexual abuse and violence that we see because women were created for men. And it's no surprise that you aren't seeing churches like really most churches not really wanting to deal with this topic of integrating women into leadership, integrating women into eldership, um, integrating women into teaching in, in the church um, and hearing those voices They'll give them the spots to kind of, you know, it's like the the appearance of progress, right? So, like, they'll give them spots to teach, um, teach the women, teach the children, um, you know, lead worship kind of a thing. But they're not elders. They're not lead pastors of churches. Um, and there's not a big push for that. And I think a lot of that is coming from this... Uh, these uh, these verses in Paul, obviously, it's it's primary, it's almost entirely Paul where that where that comes from, um, but it's this idea of like once again, men are more important than women, and it's stated in the Old Testament pretty clearly, very clearly, and it's upheld in the New Testament, and no one challenges that, no one um, cleans that up. In fact, it's it's reinforced, and. It's not a surprise, I guess, that we see that kind of reinforced in uh, in the churches across America, in these Reformed uh, evangelical churches across America. That same message is reinforced. Mm-hmm. Yes, I agree completely. And I mean, we're we're kind of as we come to the end of this episode, it is you know feels pretty discouraging. I mean, feels like. We just took a sledgehammer to the Bible, and is there any way forward for this? And 
And I believe that there is, as we've talked about many times already, through a complete just overhaul of how we see this book at all. Can I can I ask you what you mean by there's a way forward for the Bible? What do you what do you mean by that? Yeah, good question. Because when I say, and I mean people have many different opinions on this. When I say a way forward, I don't necessarily mean is there a way to still see this as the word of God? I don't hmm. I don't see it that way. But is there a way for this to still be valuable? I will I will always see it as valuable because I mean even just like paleographically, archaeologically, linguistically, literarily, like it is a a masterpiece of literature from thousands of years ago. And I mean, I will just, I'll always um, see it as, inc- it's one of the most valuable pieces of ancient literature that we have, if not the most. It will always teach us about what people have been like for thousands of years and what their views of God have been like and how that has affected them as a society and how it has affected us. Um, but do I think that it should be preached as a whole, as authoritative? Absolutely not. Um, in different different ways. I mean, the, the, some of the stories we looked at today are, I think, um, unquestionably harmful and should never be taught as um, endorsed by God. But other things like the Sermon on the Mount... I think is quite possibly, I mean, Bonhoeffer talks a lot about this, one of the most valuable pieces of teaching that the world has ever seen. Uh, so we, we can't just broad stroke the whole Bible, um, which is why we have to go and look at each of these things and, and put them through a filter of, is this good or not? And that sounds, I mean, just totally heretical. This is the definition of picking and choosing, right? This is what... Exactly. This is what those who have deconstructed their faith, those who have left their faith, those who have reimagined and become something different that, uh, in their faith. Like, this is what those looking on say, you've abandoned all truth. You know, if you can't have the Bible right. as your North Star, if we can't agree on that, then um, what's the, what's the, where's the debate? Right. We can't have, we can't even converse about these topics because we don't have the same foundational authority. And I 100% um, acknowledge that, yes, this is not orthodox, and we are not starting from the same starting place anymore. My, my question to someone who says, you know, if you're not treating the Bible as the Word of God, then, you know, I don't have anywhere to go with this. My question to them would be, why, do, how do you know that this is the Word of God? I mean, that is one of those things that we accept on faith, and... If we accept it on faith, that means that you as an individual and me as an individual are deciding whether or not we believe that it is the Word of God. And all I'm saying is I don't believe that. And you, mm. what you're saying is you do. But neither of us can prove it. So we can have a different conversation from there. But if you believe that the Bible is the Word of God because you've been told that and because for 2,000 years we've treated it that way, you know, I can understand that. But that doesn't mean I have to agree. Mm. And I don't want to agree because of the way that it would, because of these texts that we looked at today, I mean, the kind of God that that would portray is not the kind of God that I could believe in as a good God. Of course, you know, we can hear the apologetics in our mind already of, well, we don't get to decide what God is like. doesn't matter if you don't like God. But I think by the time we get there, the conversation is just, it's going a direction that's it's probably not gonna. Maybe we'll do an episode sometime, and I I, I always say put them on utterly heretical because that's where we kind of do 
these other types of things, but maybe it needs to be on almost heretical where we actually, I mean, you were, you were um, a very skilled apologist, lots of mm. research. You had the answers for everything. <laughs> you know? thought I did. Right. And um, I would just like to hear an episode where we, we, we come with like the, the top 10, you know, like uh, um, apologetics, like the responses for things. And then you actually like argue with yourself. You, yeah. oh, you push I can back do it. on that thing. So anyways, I think um, that'd be, that'd be fun. But, but, but coming back to the topic at hand and the topic of the Bible and the sexual violence toward women, there's one text in particular that I think could could and should be something that Christians start to emphasize and use. You know, I, um, particularly, you know, Christians who are still in um, organized church and using the Bible, like this is what I would want to point people to, to say, maybe we can try and um, change our attitudes towards women at least we can start here. And that text is Daniel chapter 13, which um, if you're a Protestant you and you have memorized what, the amount of chapters in every book of the Bible, which would be a little strange, but you would know that Daniel in our Bibles only has 11 chapters. Daniel in the Catholic Bible, though, has two extra chapters. And these are chapters that, as we've discussed before, Martin Luther um, removed and placed in a category called the Apocrypha, he did that because they the, these two chapters didn't have a, a Hebrew or Aramaic original, and so they he saw them as additions to later additions to Daniel, and so he didn't want them to be in the Bible. And cool, I mean, he's doing his scholarly thing. That's cool. But what is this text? Daniel chapter thirteen um, is a text called Susanna, and I remember the first time that I saw this text, like literally, I was in um, a the the archive at my university. And they pulled out a, a facsimile, so basically a replica of Codex Vaticanus. And it's this, one of the oldest copies of the Bible um, as a complete codex or book. That They've dated it to probably around the 4th century. It's so like the 300s. Um, so this is incredibly old for a being a, a, an essentially complete book, a complete collection of the, the Bible, Old and New Testament. And so, of course, because this is long before the Reformation, it still has these um, additional books like Tobit and first, you know, Estrus and Sirach and Judith and also these extra, I mean, saying extra is not really the right word because they, they were original. We're the ones who have cut it out as Protestants. So these are original to the Christian Bible. Um, and as you're flipping through, and you can look this up, um, if you look up Codex Vaticanus, on the Vatican website, it has every page is um, scanned and you can actually scroll through all the pages yourself. Obviously it's in, um, not in English, but it's still just incredible to look at. To, I mean, every letter is handwritten, every, there's no printing press, it's a thousand years before printing press. And, and so you also see like little notes in the margin every once in a while, and you see little things that have been crossed out. And so I'm flipping through this codex, just marveling at the, the, a miracle of this much literature being handwritten and passed down for hundreds of years at that point. Um, and, and each page has a couple of columns on it, occasional note in one of the margins, sometimes a little mark here or there that the scribes left for each other, but that's kind of it. Mostly it's just these three columns on each page of text. And then when you flip open to Susanna, this chapter of Daniel, the every margin is full. Ever the top, the bottom, the header, the footer are full of notes 
from the scribes. And, and I, I mean, I couldn't read them and they're in this weird handwriting of this other dialect of Greek. But, but the point was just something very significant was happening around this chapter and this story in this passage. And, um, so in that moment I knew I, I have to, I have to read this. I have to figure out what this story is about. So the story of Susanna, um, to put it briefly, Susanna is, um, a woman, a wife, um, of a, a leader in Israel at the time of Daniel. And she's very beautiful. And these two, um, religious leaders come and they want to rape her. And they, they know that she bathes in the garden of her home every day. And so they, they come by and when the servants are gone, they sneak into the garden and as, um, and then they say to her, essentially like, let us rape you. If, and if you yell out for help, then we're going to say that we caught you sleeping with one of the servants or something like that. And so she's cornered and um, she, she calls out for help anyway. And so then these leaders bring the charge against her that they caught her committing adultery. So she's brought before um, this, the court and she, she calls out to God to save her for being unjustly accused. And God then sends a message to Daniel, who's in the audience, essentially, and tells him, gives him wisdom. And so Daniel goes up and interviews the two religious leaders, finds a conflict in their stories, and basically reveals the truth that they were the ones who um, were trying to assault Susanna. And that's the story. And just compared to what we've talked about already in this episode, like that is radically different. I mean, this is that that is what the story is about. This isn't just a, a side note in a different story. The story is not about Susanna's husband. It's about her. It's about her being assaulted by the religious leaders and then God coming to her defense. And the religious leaders are condemned and then executed. I mean, that's I mean, Daniel as the prophet is the one who rescues Suzanne on God's behalf. Wow. I got like choked up like when you were even reading the story because it's just uh, so different than it didn't feel like the Bible I was used to. It didn't, it didn't feel like Bible at all that like there's wisdom being handed down from God to um, to a leader, Daniel, to help rescue a woman. Like that mm-hmm. didn't feel like God. That didn't feel like the Bible. And it just was making me... I guess sad that that wasn't ever part of the picture that I had of God in my experience. And I just was shocked that this is one of the texts that we no longer have in the Protestant Bible. Yeah. And I mean, I don't think that Martin Luther took it out um, to be mean. Like, I think he just genuinely only wanted original Hebrew texts. And this one was written later. Um, but the point is that it is a story that tells something different about God and women and unlike any other story we really have. So I think we need to start raising some awareness around this text. Like, I mean, it's obviously a little niche in the world. I'm not going to necessarily go to a Me Too movement protest with a, you know, with copies of, or maybe that would be a good idea, actually. All right. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. There you go. There's an idea. (laughs) Um, But but I guess I bring it up for, for those of us who are still using the Bible or people who are, you know, maybe there's pastors listening to this who are trying to figure out a new way of 
of engaging the Bible and a new way of presenting it to their congregations. Or maybe there's just Bible study leaders or small group leaders and people who are like, how do I, how, what do I do here? And I would say, first of all, you're, you're not doing anything heretical by going to these um, texts found in the Catholic Apocrypha. Um, if, if, you, if you're confronted with that, um, we can help you out. But these, these texts have been part of Christian tradition for 75% of Christian history. And even Martin Luther didn't think that they were heretical. He just had um, kind of scholarly technical issues with some of them. But yeah, in those contexts, a text like this, like, we, let's start reading this. Let's start studying this. Let's start having a sermon series on this passage. And how different, what a different attitude we would start to have because of the contrast that this shows with so much of the rest of the Bible. And that it can show that something like the Me Too movement isn't just a modern idea. Like, women have been oppressed forever, and people, whoever wrote this story of Susanna, was someone who had the awareness, and probably a man, because men did, pretty much did all this writing. It was a man who had the awareness that this is not okay, and this violence toward her should be condemned by God. And that's, that's a different understanding, and that's a, that, I think, could provide a way forward in, in some sense. As we wrap up shows now, I want to start bringing in voices from the almost heretical discussion group that we have on Facebook. It's for patrons, but uh, we've lowered everything. So it's just five bucks a month to become a patron of Almost Heretical. And then you get in this Facebook group, you get a bunch of other things like a monthly Zoom call we do and two extra episodes of Utterly Heretical that we do every month. Um, anyways, I really want to see you in this group because we have, this is where we sort of talk through a lot of these things. People mm -hmm. share their stories and experiences um, and we can all kind of be there for each other. And for years, people ask like, how can I be a part of something. There's no one talking about these things in my city. Um, I feel like I'm the only one. This is sort of our way of doing that. Um, and the $5 is just to kind of help the work that we're doing here to keep this going because um, we want to be able to do this for, for a while. So, But I want to I share one voice. Um, it, it might be a question that we respond to from the Facebook group, um, or it might just be a statement from someone, um, a comment that someone shared um, at the end of each episode. So this one's from... Um, one of the patrons of the show, I'm not going to share names when I do these, by the way, because I want to keep everything that happens in this group just private and safe and secure in there. Um, but this person said, it feels like every time I turn around, I'm hit in the face with something else that makes me feel like I was lied to my entire life. Mm. The Dead Sea Scrolls were only 13% biblical texts, and they had alternate creation and Bible stories in them. Yeah, I never got told that. I appreciate this episode. They're talking about episode three of the Woman series a lot. It's hard as a woman when you start realizing how much you aren't represented in Christianity. I remember telling my pastor that when I go to church, I sing songs, usually led by a male song leader, about a male God and a male Jesus, and then listen to sermons by a male teacher who teaches them from a book written by males about stories almost having, almost always having male protagonists. He had no clue why that would bother me. He also didn't understand why I was upset that his Easter sermon was centered on the only biblical passage that leaves women entirely out of the story. I had been having a hard time with church at that point and had been excited to attend for Easter because I was sure women were going to be part of that story on that day. But no, we can apparently tell one of the few stories that centers women without them in it as well. Hmm. Wow, thank you for sharing that, whoever you were that wrote that. And 
Um, I so identify with that feeling of feeling like in a lot of ways we've been lied to by, you know, people with the best of intentions, but many of them men, I mean, for most of us, our leaders of our faith have always been men, both in the Bible and in the church. And so it's not surprising that those men often don't understand the impact that the, that this has, you know, what she was saying about, you know, her pastor not understanding why she, why it bothered her that all of these things were men. It's almost like, you know, wow, this is, you're making such a big deal about this. And, um, but, but there's something in our, in our gut and in our body and our soul. Cause what, the, what does this say? As we've said, almost every episode at this point, like what it tells us is that we are not as important and, and I mean, it's a topic like we've addressed today just says that on the most basic of levels, like even our just bodies are not as important. And I, I kind of want to check in here at the end, just with listeners, especially female listeners um, who have made it through this episode. You know, even if even if you, uh, you know, listen, despite the trigger warning at the beginning, uh, like li- just permission to listen to your body. You might need a bit of a break today. You might need to go for a walk. You might need to, um, go talk to somebody like this is really heavy. And it says things about who we are as people. And it's, I mean, it's really getting into, this is a type of trauma. We've all been through a type of trauma where we've been told that, uh, people like us does have deserved to be abused, have Hmm. that, that their abuse has been justified by God. And, um, that we've believed that for our whole lives, many of us. And that's, so if you feel like these almost, these weird, maybe unexpected kind of PTSD type feelings, um, I just want to say that that is okay. Um, and it makes sense that you feel that. And so just give yourself some, some grace today and for however long you need. Yeah. And, and uh, join these communities that we have. I mean, this is, a great place to to talk these things through, to share these ideas with mm-hmm. others. Yeah, um, we're there for each other. I say that all the time. We're on this journey with you, and um, we're doing this for you. And so we'd love to see you in there. Yeah, we we emphasize over and over again on this podcast that you're not alone. So as you process this episode, and you know, if you have more questions, especially about who is God, then and like how can I how can I relate to God at all. I think, you know, we did, we talked mostly about the Bible on this episode, but some of these implications are huge. And just remember that you're not alone in figuring those things out. And you can always reach out to us um, through our website. And, um, and then you can also, you can join and be part of a community of people who are figuring that all out together. Yeah. Yeah. And as we continue the series, where, where are we headed next? Honestly, the next episode I think is probably going to be my favorite. Um, I think maybe I've said that about all of them, but um we're going to talk about the New Testament, um, specifically the Gospels and a bit in Paul. We're going to spend a good bit of time talking about my personal hero, Mary Magdalene, and um, a different story regarding her that um, we we have textually. So I'm going to just leave that uh, for next time, but please join in. It's going to be a wild ride. All right. Thanks for spending time with us today. And again, be a part of these communities that we're doing, be a part of these Zoom calls that we have every month where we just hang out and we talk about different topics, talk through questions that we have. Um, We'd love to see you part of all that. And you can get in touch with questions. 
you know, concerns, any pushback, anything we missed on these episodes, we love to read all that. And so you can do that in the Facebook group. So go to almostradical.com and you can join that group there. All right, we will catch you next time.